Ranjan is always Ranjani. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, joining me today, we have Dylan Scott and Tara Gulsham, uh, both two uh, great, great reporters uh, from, from Capitol Hill here, uh, to talk about the uh, tax reform story, which has sort of receded into a bit of a, a B plot line this week as we've had um, <laughs> the continuing uh, escapades of, of Roy Moore, um, Al Franken, some some creepy photos and, and serious allegations. But but like this tax reform thing seems to be happening, uh, which is a Dylan wrote a, a piece about that. I want, want to talk about just like that fact later. Um, but but the House, the House passed a bill yesterday with, with not that much drama. Right, Tara? Yeah, they they passed it uh, with only 13 Republicans defecting. So if you remember from the health care drama, they can only lose 24 ish votes um, on these kind of big ticket items. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of drama or or late in the game, back and forth. Will we or won't we? Trump came the morning of the vote. They had a very positive meeting that did not talk a lot about tax reform. It seems like he talked mostly about his trip to Asia. And then they went in and they voted for it. And and the, you know, and the the difference between thirteen no votes and, and twenty two no votes it's it's not a huge number of people, but it's. It is telling because often with a controversial issue, leadership will, it's called catch and release, you know, and will like tell certain members, like, go ahead, vote against us on this. You know, if you need for your reelection to like say you were against this thing, we don't need your vote on it. And then some other time they'll like come back to you and be like, no, like you got to vote with us here. Uh, so the fact that there was a margin, you know, it shows that there were members, like members wanted to be on the record voting yes for this bill. You know, if there were a half dozen people who were saying like, hey, Paul, you know, this is a really tough one for me. Can you give me a pass? Like, he could have given them a pass. But, like, they they wanted to vote for this. They are excited about tax reform. Well, and there was nobody, like, trying... There were no, like, cohorts like there were in the healthcare debate where people were trying to, like, band together and get leverage to change the final package. Like, this came, thing came out two weeks ago. It's now been put on the House floor. Like, the official detailed legislative text came out two weeks ago. It's already gone to the House floor and passed. And as far as I can remember, like, it wasn't really changed all that. Like, there were some changes, but there weren't, like— Yeah, there there were tweaks. But there was none of the, like, like, again, all of this, the Obamacare repeal debate shapes how I view all of this. But there was none of the, like, you know— the House Freedom Caucus and the moderates getting together and trying to figure out how to, like, use their numbers to force leadership to change the package to something more to their liking. Like, there was just none of that drama yeah. over we the last couple We saw a weeks. little bit of it at the beginning with the the New York, New Jersey contingent that was trying to get a little bit of a sweeter deal on the start, state and local deduction, which we can talk about later. But, right. uh, yeah, it, it was largely there's this sense in the House that is pushing them forward that we need to get this done by the end of the year and we can't be as picky on policy issues this time around because healthcare was such a massive, embarrassing disaster for us. So we're seeing that a lot in the House. And I am I guess, I mean, the Senate passed its bill through the Finance Committee last night. Right. So it's kind of going through the same right. same motions. So let's talk about too. What, what does this House bill do? 
right? Because Paul Ryan, he he had as his, his pin tweet was about how a typical family of four is going to get a tax cut of eleven hundred eighty-two dollars. Um, so you might think, based on that tweet, that a typical family of four would get a tax <laughs> cut of eleven hundred eighty-two dollars, because that's what Paul Ryan said. Um, is that really true, though? Right. So the, the the way this legislation works is that you start. This typical, it's a it's a four person family making fifty nine thousand dollars is how Paul Ryan asked us to judge this. Uh, that's the national median income. Four person family is very sort of normative. Uh, actually, most four person families are richer than the national median. But you know, Paul Ryan can pick the example family he wants. In twenty eighteen, they do get an eleven hundred eighty two dollar tax cut. Uh, then in twenty nineteen, their tax cut gets a little bit smaller, and that's because one change this bill makes is that the inflation indexing of the tax brackets gets a little bit uh, sort of less generous, right? So in the second year, it gets smaller. In the third year, it gets smaller. In the fourth year, it gets smaller. In the fifth year, it gets smaller. But then in the sixth year, this family's tax cut goes away entirely. Um, and that's because this new sort they've created like a new tax credit that basically ensures everyone is going to get a tax cut. But that credit goes away after five years. Right. Uh, so this typical family of four, by year six, they're paying slightly more taxes than they are right now. And then because of the change to inflation indexing, their tax increase just sort of escalates year after year after year after year. So that's how the typical family of four is <laughs> impacted. Um, at the same time, if you are a not-so-typical family of four that stands to inherit, say, a $50 million fortune, you're getting a big tax cut, right? There's a total repeal of the estate tax. That's worth, I think it's about two to $300 billion in, in 10 years. And then big changes on the business side, right? Corporate tax goes from 35% to 20% and pass-through businesses, right? So that's like, if we have a partnership, you know, the three of us, we're like, Weeds Co. LLC, um, and we get our income from that rather than, you know, being employees, we can pay at a 25% rate. And that's like, that's what the bill does, basically, right? It's a, a large business tax cut. Yeah, I think that's, that's, they've made clear that that is their priority across both of the chambers at this point. Like the only consistent thing from the very start of the tax reform debate, and in a way, the most consistent thing between the House and the Senate plans is we need to cut the corporate tax rate from 35% to 20%. And everything else is negotiable, but that is not. And inevitably, because tax reform is about trade-offs and you have to, wait to figure out a way to pay for this, if you're not going to mess around on the corporate side of the things, that means you're going to have these budget gimmicks, et cetera, on the individual side. And importantly, what we've seen on the House was, so that Matt Fuller, the Huffington Post, reported the story the night before the vote that there was this kind of small contingent of, of conservatives that were all of a sudden looking at this math and saying, well, maybe this isn't the 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 tax cut that Paul Ryan is saying maybe isn't true and maybe this math isn't working out. And while if our if our constituents see this and they see that their tax cuts are actually non-existent, then we'll be a little bit screwed. But then ultimately they kind of just swallowed all of that and voted for it anyways. So it's it's again reasserting what Dylan just said that the corporate tax cut is really really what matters the path through lower rate is really what matters and those are the top priorities and it's and it's timed I mean it's it's worth saying right I mean the timing here is well designed to sort of help you get away with it 
right? If this bill passes, most people will see lower taxes at the 2018 midterms, and they will see lower taxes, not that much lower, but somewhat lower at the 2020 Donald Trump reelect. Right. Um, and even through to the 2022 midterms, uh, by then, the situation gets dicey for, for a lot of people. But the, the sort of real impact where you're seeing like a broad tax increase on individuals in order to pay for a big tax cut on business owners is in the long-term trajectory. So it's to that extent, it's, it's well-designed. Although there are several million, I mean, tens of millions of people will see tax increases in the short run under this bill yeah. because of some of the, some of the pay fors. Right. I think uh, our, former friend Jim Tankersley at the New York Times had a piece in the last couple of weeks that said, I, I think like 13 million households would like immediately see their taxes go up over, under this plan, which, you know, that's certainly not the majority of the country, but 13 million people seeing higher taxes, that's that's a lot of people. And I, and I do wonder about the psychological and political impact. I mean, everybody like prefers paying less taxes to paying more taxes, I think. But there's something almost like shocking about a Republican administration raising your taxes. Like, that's, like, what you don't expect to see happen. Right. Like, I remember Election Day, like, you know, I was talking to my wife, and we were kind of upset, and we weren't big Donald Trump fans. I was like, well, you know, at least we'll get a tax cut. And, like, <laughs> I've been looking at this bill, and I think, like, we're not going to get a tax cut. We're going to get a taxes raised. And it's not—it doesn't sit that well with me. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's just a testament to how hard the math has been for them. Right. Well, and something we've talked about before, but bears repeating and um, is that, you know, they've they've made some very conscious choices that the people who are likely to face higher taxes live in democratically controlled states are probably Democratic voters themselves. And so, like, it does seem that there's a pretty raw political calculus that to achieve the trade-offs that we need to to make the math work here, we're going to target people who don't really vote for us anyway. But, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's worth dwelling on, like, how aggressive this corporate rate cut is, right? Because to go from 35 to 20 is like, that's a that's a really big drop, right? If you went from 35 to 28, right, you could still go to corporate America and be like, we have cut your taxes. Like, perhaps you would have liked a bigger tax cut, but this is a tax cut, you know, give us some credit. And then the math becomes much easier, Right. It's like they the math is hard and forced them into this stuff. But the math became hard because they chose to say not just like we're committed to a corporate tax cut, but we're committed to a really big corporate tax. I'll cut. confess I don't know. Is there any empirical reason that it needs to be 20 percent other than it's a nice, clean number? They So they're comparing it to European countries and because I think on average European countries are at twenty one percent, so this would bring something them like that. Or, but I mean, it's all kind of as arbitrary we know. Republicans have always believed American social policy should be modeled after Europe. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so many regards as possible. But yeah, I mean that that is the reason. But, I mean, but it is kind of arbitrary because if you look at I, there have been several reports of like how much corporations actually pay instead right. of what the rate is. It's a lot lower than a lot of these European countries. So, I mean. I mean, it, regardless, they've picked this number. It's interesting to me. I mean, so four years ago, when, when Mitt Romney ran in 2012, right, he wanted to propose a corporate tax reform, right, where he was going to close loopholes and bring the rates down. Um, but he didn't want to say he was going to pay for a corporate tax cut by raising taxes on individuals, because that's crazy. <laughs> um, so, you know, they did the math and they 
asserted that they could get it down to a 25% rate via, um, you know, reform. And some people, I mean, it was a political campaign. So like some people said they were wrong about that, but other people defended them. That seems like a ballpark of like what you really could do. Right. Like according to Republicans. And then sometime in the intervening four years, they decided like they had to go lower than that. And that's, that's how you get into this mess, right? That in 2012, I think the Romney, I mean, it's basically the same people, right? Yeah. I mean, the the belief that low corporate income tax rates are good is not like a disagreement between Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan, but they had a turn change of heart about like what's politically viable yeah. in terms of, you know, how low you can try to go, how you can try to pay for it. Um, so I think we should, we should take a break and then let's talk about some of these pay-fors in the House bill and some of the politics on that. Would you buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? We wouldn't. Uh, and with Everlane, you don't have to. You, you never overpay for quality clothes. They only make premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional huge markups. And they tell you their real costs, so you know you're never overpaying. Uh, Everlane wants you to know what you're paying for and why you're paying for it. They're radically transparent about every step in their process, from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. Because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Their clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. Essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. It's really great stuff. Uh, their 100% human tea is great. Their Twill Weekender bag is something I love to use. Uh, uh, my wife likes their Cashmere Crew, their High Rise Skinny Jean. There's there's a lot of great stuff that they have out there. They're timeless essentials. They're really, they're just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. Right now, you get free shipping on your first order when you go to everlane.com weeds. That's everlane.com slash weeds, everlane.com slash weeds. All right. Uh, so, Tara, you, you mentioned salt earlier. Um, it, it's good good to season food with. Uh, but what, <laughs> what, 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 is that, what does that mean in a, in a tax context? Uh, so it's it stands for the state and local tax deduction. Um, and basically, for high-tax states, it allows people to deduct their income and property tax um, which helps a lot of people in states like California and New Jersey and uh, and New York, which is kind of why you saw those were the the few defections from the bill overall. Um, so what the House bill does is that it completely repeals the income uh, state and local tax deduction, and then it caps the property state and local tax deduction at $10,000. Right. What's interesting about that to me is that when that was first floated, it seemed like an effort to appease uh, New York and New Jersey members who have high property taxes. I mean, also reasonably high income taxes, but then to just like really fuck over California uh, because California, because of, um, I forget what it's called, prop, do you know? I don't. The famous prop Anyway, there's something. There's property tax caps in California. So California is a blue state, but because of this initiative in the 70s, they can't raise property taxes that much. So they really high income taxes relative to other states. So it's this is like really it's like it's bad for everyone who lives in blue states, but it's especially bad for California. It's prop thirteen. Prop thirteen. Right. Um, but the California members all voted for it. They did. And so I'm having a piece forthcoming on Vox.com on this. But so something that we saw was that there, there are 14 Republicans from California and only three of them voted against this tax bill. But where you, you compare that to other states that are similarly being screwed over by this kind of policy, like New York, where they have 
They have nine Republicans in the state and five of them voted. Of the five Republicans in New Jersey, four of them voted against it. So clearly something's going on in California. And this bill is particularly bad for Californians because of what Matt said on the income tax front. And then it's confusing looking forward because a lot of them said, well, we think the Senate is going to make this bill better. We'll just vote for it now. But the Senate's proposal completely repeals the state and local yes. tax the, the, the Senate's proposal is less micro-targeted at scoring over California, but it's actually just it's just across the board worse for residents of blue states. My sense of what was going on in California is sort of two things. One is that they, some of the members there have sort of convinced themselves that, you know, because the Republicans in California do tend to represent some of the more rural part of the states yes. where they're lower, you know, people make less money, there are lower home values because another thing that touches California is the changes to the mortgage tax deduction. Um, and so some of them, it seemed like, had legitimately convinced themselves that, well, my specific constituents in my district will not be that adversely affected by this. And then the other part of it that you can't ignore is that the House Majority Leader is Kevin McCarthy, who is a California Republican. And he seems to have done a very good job. Like, there was some reporting in the Washington Post that he had very explicitly asked the um, the California contingent not to be outspoken about this bill and to just sort of find a way to get to yes because the party needs a win. And he yeah. seems to be very good at that sort of... I mean, the, I mean, the McCarthy thing... Well, here, say No, I was just going to say he's known... As- is a very well-liked guy. He brings a lot of money into the party. He's a very skilled political tactician. I think he is making a lot of insurances of, hey, we and the party will protect you. And I think looking at how these members voted, that seemed to be compelling enough. Right. But I mean, if if like, if you think about how Congress traditionally worked, like the, the McCarthy explanation, that seems true. If you want to know like, why did California members get behind this? That is why. But in like, traditional understanding of Congress, that's like a backwards explanation, right? If this crucial number two guy in the House, who's a major fundraiser, really Mm. well-liked in the caucus, is from California, that ought to explain why House Republicans won't go for a measure that's designed to destroy California. Where's the pork? I mean, you can can talk yourself into this idea that like, okay, you know, I'm Mimi Rogers, my district is inland, it's at about the national median income, home price are more expensive than national average, but not that much more expensive. So this doesn't touch me that much. Um, But people who live in California, right, they are residents of the state of California. The situation in the state budget impacts them, right? right? The overall economy of California impacts them, right? And they are not going to be... um, well served by a plan that like hammers their local finances. I mean, how exactly that cashes out for them, you know, only time will tell. Uh, yeah. But it's not going to be good, particularly because the internal politics of California are the opposite of the politics of the House Republican caucus, right? When California state legislature needs to screw someone over because they got screwed over, they're not going to say, well, Paul Ryan's intention was to make people living in big coastal cities pay the price for this. So we'll allocate the budget to make sure that Nancy Pelosi's constituents feel the pain. It's going to be the opposite, right? The leaders in the state legislature can be like, well, somebody's got to take it on the chin. It's going to be the people who live in the Republican areas. So, I mean, I don't know. You know, I mean, like a lot of the other things here, it just goes to show that they, like, they really think this corporate tax cut is a good idea. It's everything, yeah. Right. So so what, what else do we have here, right? So I hear people talking about, um, uh, so PhD candidates 
are going to pay higher taxes, grad school. Well, yeah, they just eliminate sort of they do a, they do a much better job than the Senate bill does, which I know we'll get to of actually eliminating a lot of deductions, which is supposed to be the whole goal of simplifying the tax code and say, yeah, you have stuff that touches PhD candidates and graduate students. You have, um, you know, they eliminate uh, the deduction that allows people to um, deduct, you know, if they have high medical costs, they're allowed to deduct that from their taxes. They wouldn't be allowed to under the House bill. Um, teachers, if te- they teachers buying yeah. school supplies. Teachers. Teachers. We're hearing a lot yeah, about that. that. Yeah, there's a lot of like heart heartstring deductions yeah. that they are actually uh, getting rid of in the House plan, but it doesn't. It's hard to know how seriously to take that because the Senate then backtracked on all of this, and so you know it just seems. Yeah, we'll sort of see. Like, I mean, the Senate, but the House. I mean, if we if we think about like so. You know, when you think on the one hand, it's like, oh, my God, they're they're raising taxes on teachers who buy school supplies for their own. Children. The adoption tax. How, credit, how hard that. Right. Yeah. So that's like that's like, oh, my God, they're monsters. But then we step back, put put your wonk hat on and you're like, look, OK, this sounds nice. You can think of a million little deductions that sound nice. But if you do every deduction that sounds nice, then you have this really complicated tax code. Rates need to be really high. The whole point of tax reform isn't like, fuck you, teachers. But it's like, we need to simplify. We need to get the rates down. But then what's odd about this, (laughs) right, is that they haven't done, like the 86 tax reform, it eliminated a lot of well-liked tax expenditures, and then it lowered tax rates so that on net, like, taxes, there were winners and losers, but, like, on net, taxes stayed the same, and it was supposed to be more efficient, and so on and so forth. But here, they're eliminating all these deductions in order to eliminate the estate tax and do a big tax cut for pass-through businesses. So it's sort of like, the, the, like, naive knee-jerk take is, like, kind of right in a way that initially it seemed like maybe it wouldn't be. Right. In that, And you mean the knee-jerk take in that, like, they're eliminating these deductions and not cutting, like, middle-class taxes in order to fund the corporate tax. Yeah, tax they're, the they're, small... they're eliminating these feel-good things, right. not really in order to simplify the individual tax code, but just to, like, free up money for this pass-through thing. It yeah. is like a caricature, almost, of, like, what, like, Democrats would say a Republican tax plan wants to do. Yeah, and then they, it really is. They did it. And, and then they get yesterday. really mad when you bring it up. <laughs> right. I mean, if you say that, I mean, that's the, the other thing. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. You know, we're, we're all grownups here. Politics is what it is. But I mean, I do go back to this Paul Ryan pin tweet. It would, it would be interesting to me to have a situation in which they were like, yes, look, what we are doing is we are raising taxes on individuals in order to cut taxes on business owners and heirs to large estates because we think that that's a good idea. Right. And like point to some... I mean, there is some research that says this is a good idea. Um, there, There is a theory that this will allow uh, foreign investors will be like, we got to we gotta get in on, on the USA, right? Like being an American business owner is now really good. And then we're going to like build tons of factories and everyone is going to get higher pay. And, you know, who's going to care, right? Your taxes went up $300, uh, but your wages went up $4,000. So everybody wins. Right. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I don't think that's right. I definitely don't think it's a winning political argument. But yeah, I mean, rate, I think that's the main, that's the huge problem because it, there were polls that were like 60% of Americans think corporations pay too much. Pay um, too little. Pay too oh, little. Oh, sorry, too right. little. Yeah. yeah, say pay too little, excuse me. 
I will say, I don't know if it's to their credit, but like several several Republicans over the last week or so have sort of given away the game, which is that like, you know, we've been through a year now of just like constant tumult in Washington, D.C. and the Trump presidency and a Republican Congress haven't really, if you're a Republican donor, they haven't really done anything for you. I mean, there's been some regulatory, regulatory rollback and, you know, those I mean, they made it easier things. to import African elephant tusks. There, right, there, there have been things. But, like, if you're a Republican donor, and particularly, like, a corporate donor, you probably gave money to Republicans because you expected them to cut your taxes. And if they can't do that, then sort of what good are they to you? And so you've had several Republicans say over the last week that, like, if we don't do this, we're just going to lose all of our corporate donor support. And so, like, that is sort of the, even if sort of the broader popular politics seem... Um, are kind of confounding to us. Like, it seems like a very simple equation from their point of view. But this is where, like, the magic of Fox News really comes into play, right? Because, (laughs) like, if Sean Hannity tonight did an episode about how a lot of white working class people signed up for Donald Trump's populist campaign because they really wanted to stick it to globalists and elites— but now actually Republicans are going to raise taxes on working class people in order to finance a corporate tax cut. And that the reason for that is that that's what rich business donors want them to do. <laughs> like they'd be done. Right. right? Like, like the whole thing would evaporate in a minute. And like there's a rationale for this all, but it's just it's like at its base, it's built on the conviction that Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and Rush Limbaugh are going to cover for them. Right. Yeah, it's almost as if the alleged populism of uh, certain parts of the Republican Party is just a cover for uh, achieving the ends of corporate donors. It's so, almost as if. So cynical. It's almost <laughs> as if. Okay, well, let's, 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 take, let's take a break. Let's talk about the Senate. Whether you're looking for dependable political reporting, high-quality storytelling, or the latest on culture and entertainment, magazines really deliver it all with high-quality writing and beautiful photography. And now you can get all your magazines in one place with Texture. Uh, the Texture app gives you unlimited access to over 200 premium magazines. They've got leading titles. I mean, it's amazing, the list of titles that they have. Time, The Atlantic, New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Wired, but, like, really everything. Better Homes and Gardens, Men's Fitness, Macworld, Entertainment Weekly. Like, they've really brought together all the leading publishers in the magazine world. Uh, so you, you can just imagine having your favorite magazines and their back issues anytime, anywhere, on your phone or on your tablet. If you have like an iPad, it's amazing. You know, the sort of layout, the richness of magazines really pops through with their ads. To start your Texture free trial, go to texture.com slash weeds. If you choose to continue, if you like it, uh, podcast listeners will get Texture for just $9.99 a month. That's 30% off their listed price. And it's just like, it's an insanely good deal. Think about it, $9.99 a month for all of these magazines, right? Like hundreds of great magazines all right there in your hands. It's amazing. There's some great gift options available for the holiday season. Uh, if you've got friends or family who you know love great journalism, uh, it's a great thing to get them. So go to texture.com slash weeds to start your free trial today. That's texture.com slash weeds, texture.com slash weeds. All right. Senate bill is different from the House bill in a number of respects, and a, but like a critical difference is just that the rules are different. So like, can, can you? I mean, we've talked about on the weeds bird rule a the million times, rule. but it is always important. Like the the House bill 
is not compliant in the Senate. They have to write a bill that's compliant. So what is that? Right. And Tara, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this. But so under the Senate, the Senate is using what's called budget reconciliation to pass their tax plan. And that allows the bill to advance with only 50 votes. And there are 52 Republican senators. So with only Republican votes instead of the usual 60, which would mean you'd need Democratic buy-in. But there are certain conditions that come with using those special privileges under budget reconciliation. And there are two of them that are really important for the tax bill. One is that under the budget resolution that the Senate passed to set this whole process up, the tax bill can only increase the federal deficit over the next 10 years by $1.5 trillion. And we already saw with um, with the House plan and I think the original Senate plan, like they just hit that mark. Exactly. And so it's going to be really hard to make any sort of adjustments to address any objections that people have. Um, the other piece of it is that you know, you can't increase the deficit by more than $1.5 trillion over 10 years. And then after 10 years, um, year 11, year 12, year 13, you can't increase the federal deficit at all, right? Yeah. And that's where the House bill had a lot of problems because all I think most of its changes were permanent. And it didn't seem like we—I think we knew that in year 11, the House bill would increase the federal deficit and therefore not comply with the Senate, the Senate rules. Yeah, so, I mean, something that was a little bit lost in all the news yesterday was like the House passed a bill that— absolutely cannot pass the Senate based on Senate rules. Right. I mean, so, <laughs> right. I mean, not not like, oh, it won't fly, but yeah, it's like if it you just, brought this to the floor, they'd say, oh, point of order. Yeah. And they'd throw it out. <laughs> and then you'd have to get Democrats on board. But yeah, so basically a major problem for them and for the Senate as well, though they made, made changes to the Senate bill to make it compliant with the Byrd rule, is that in the out years, in year 11, 12, and 13, it would increase the deficit and they can't do that. Right. And so now the Senate, it seems like the biggest change that the Senate has now made is that the corporate tax cuts are permanent and the individual tax cuts would sunset at the end of the decade to avoid this problem, right? And yes, and they would repeal the individual mandate on Obamacare. Right, which is a whole and, different wait, thing. There's, so there's, there's, there's a bunch of changes to the individual tax code in the Senate side. They all expire after 10 years, except for one, and that's the inflation change. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the so the aspect of it that raises taxes on individuals is permanent. <laughs> Everything that would cut taxes on individuals is temporary, and that's how you make it work. And to I mean, and then they also bring back personal exemptions. Yes. So that was something right. that was repealed, and they bring that back after five years, which is confusing. Right. Um, so okay. So the individual mandate. Th- this is an interesting one though, because this is a funny quirk, right? Because mm-hmm. when when this was first floated. I heard a lot of people say, like, the individual mandate, like, that's a tax that raises money. How, right. how does this help them? But this this turned, like, the Republicans are right about this. Repealing the individual mandate does reduce the deficit. Right, yeah. So the individual mandate, um, for those who you know, I guess haven't listened to the weeds before. Um, <laughs> the individual mandate is the requirement in the Affordable Care Act that you either have health insurance or you pay a penalty. And it's by far the least popular part of the law, but it's also essential to making the law work because if you're going to say that insurance companies can't discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions, then you need to bring both healthy and sick people into the market. And the way you bring healthy people in is you say, well, you have to have insurance or you pay this penalty. And so Republicans hate it. It's been the foundation really of their opposition position to Obamacare from the start. And so now the Senate has proposed repealing it. And that does sort of paradoxically save money. But the reason that it saves money is the Congressional Budget Office projects that about 13 million fewer Americans would have health insurance 10 years from now if the individual mandate were repealed. And that's through a combination of both 
people wouldn't necessarily sign up for Medicaid if they there was no mandate compelling them to. It's also because, you know, insurance premiums are going to go up in the individual insurance market as healthy people start to drop out without a mandate and that's going to drive prices up and it kind of creates not a death spiral exactly, but sort of a mini death spiral that just means the insurance market's going to get sicker, that's going to increase costs, and that's going to lead more people to decide, especially without a mandate, that, well, it's not worth it for me to um, to have insurance. And so if the federal government's spending less money on Medicaid and less money on the uh, tax subsidies that people get in the Obamacare marketplaces, then it does end up saving money. But the right. too See, long didn't read is 13 million fewer insured means less cost to the federal government, and that's how it saves money. Nice. Wow. That was um, impressive. Yeah, that's that sounds great. Um, so, that, so, so, so that kind of made, made it work out. So, so what, what what else is different? So one difference is that in the House you have some House members who are from blue states. So there was some kind of give on the mortgage issue and the salt issue. In the Senate, it it doesn't work like that. Yeah, in the Senate they fully repeal the state and local tax deduction, which brings in a lot of money for them too make the corporate tax cuts and all that. Well, it's, I mean, within the 10-year, yeah, right? The 10 so year. it's like they have the 10-year and they have the long-term, right. right? So they're they're harsher on the blue states within the 10-year window, other than like everything else, it ends up, it ends up vanishing in the right. end. Um, it's a bit, it's a bit of a weird one. Uh, so the Senate one also, though, is easier on some of these deductions, right? They don't, yeah, they it, don't just eliminate everything. Right, it doesn't really go through all of those kind of pull at your heartstrings deductions and take them away. It kind of just leaves those be. Right. The adoption tax credits or tax deduction is still there. Yeah. The medical expenses deduction is still there. Right. Um, so, yeah. The flip side is they, they don't get to have their fake postcard. <laughs> right. right. Yes. In the, in, the, in the Senate, you still can't do your taxes on, on the postcard. Um, right. So that's that's unfortunate uh, for you, I guess. Um, but it's, they have, and they also deal the uh, state tax, right? They, Incre- they have a big estate tax cut, but it's not entirely eliminated. Right. And that's because, I guess, Mike Rounds sort of weirdly had said he didn't think it should be repealed entirely. Yeah, as did Susan Collins. Yeah, there are right. just a few yeah, senators few. who don't like the optics of that you've been laying right. out from the But search. it's like they're comfortable. But I mean, Senate Republican leadership has long been comfortable with writing bills that Susan Collins doesn't vote for. Right. Mike Rounds right. is someone who I heard that Mike Rounds objected to this. I had to Google, like, who is Mike Rounds? <laughs> this is like one of, he's normally like a, like a go-along, get-along guy, right? Like if you write a bill that he's not going to vote for, like you have a real you're probably Problem. in trouble. Yeah. Right. right. So, you know, that that kind of stuff, right? It, it seemed like from the heart of the Senate caucus, they didn't want to say that this was completely eliminating uh, estate taxation. So they, they double the exemptions, right? So right now... Um, you can have your first $5.5 million, which is really $11 million if you're a married couple, and they're doubling that. Uh, right. So this is like, you know, great news for you if your uh, parents have, uh, you know, 15 to $20 million fortune to, to give to you. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not in that state. Um, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to miss my salt deduction instead. Uh, but that's that's like about where they are. And so and so where does this bill stand procedurally? So they just passed the Senate Finance Committee. Um, which is that's like the big markup that they have to go through. Um, and that was when they introduced sunsetting all the individual tax reforms and all that. Um, and then it has to go through the budget committee uh, and then to the floor. And so the idea is that they are going to vote on it the week after Thanksgiving. So very, very fast. Right. They're all on recess next week. And then they're going to come back and do tax reform. 
It'll all happen in the month of November. Even like the introduction of the House right. bill, I think, was November 2nd. Yeah. And so if um, the Senate keeps to their schedule, tax reform will basically have happened. Well, then we'll, we'll have more. Right. But like the, some of the major parts of tax reform yeah. will have happened in like And for the weeks. members that were in tax reform in 86, this is like a, whoa, what's going on? Because that took two years and— yeah, you had a great quote from, I think, Peter King of New York, one of the few House Republicans who did vote against the tax plan, who was like, in 1986, this took two years, and yeah. the House just did it in 10 days. In 10 days. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I will say, I guess in defense of them, right? I mean, they've been—this has been worked on by—particularly by House Republicans for a lot longer than 10 days. I, yeah. I mean, one of the big differences in politics of 2017 from 1986 is that much less gets done now through the formal process in the committees and much more gets done um, in a sort of leadership-led process that people are involved with. Uh, Peter King, you know, for better or for worse, right? Like, Peter King didn't, like, make best friends with Kevin Brady two years ago and get on the little tax reform working group that put out the better way plan, whatever. I mean, I'm not sure that that would have saved him. Yeah. But it's it, it's not like they haven't done work. It just, it hasn't been recorded committee votes, right? Like we talked on previous weeds about the destination-based cash flow tax idea. Like there was a whole process through which that was like floated and shot down. It just I mean, it might be challenging for, like, future historians, right? Like, you can look through the records of the United States Congress in 1985-86 and, like, see what they were doing. Whereas now, it's like, you'd have to look at at news clippings, right? Because, like, these things happened. They were considered and they changed, but they weren't, like, on the record in that kind of way. Yeah, I mean, in the House, it came together in the last week, all closed, cl- behind closed doors in the Ways and Means Committee and just Republicans. And yeah, you, as you said, like we we're getting leaks of things being floated and shot down. And occasionally Trump would tweet something that must have been floated and shot down. And right. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's been incredibly fast. And and that seems to have prevented any real like any real resistance from forming. Like I think the fact that the House managed to pass this so easily is telling. I mean, I do think in part that's a reflection of, you know, taxes are maybe harder to sort of demagogue and the the stakes aren't quite as visceral as they were with healthcare um, when you're talking about like life and death versus are you going to pay a couple hundred more dollars in taxes or not. Um, healthcare is in there now. But healthcare is in there now. But I do think, I just think that, uh, and then there also is just sort of like, you know, Republicans wanted to repeal Obamacare, but like now that they've failed to do that, they know they absolutely must cut taxes or else like there's no reason as I think Lindsey Graham said recently, there's no reason for them to be in the majority if they can't cut taxes. So I think sort of both the speed and the desperation is informing, like are kind of feeding off of each other. And that's why suddenly it seems like tax reform is happening. But I mean, it's important to note also that that we are seeing some rumblings. I mean, there's always Ron Johnson who's come out. Yeah, the Senate will be different. Yeah, the Senate's going to be different. Um, I mean, it's still like the schedule is incredibly fast uh, and they're gone next week. So when they come back after Thanksgiving, it's going to be, you're going to have to watch very closely of who's going to come speak out. I mean, an interesting thing, though, right, that, that I think we've seen throughout the, the Trump era is that things that are, like, 
bad for the Republican Party, right? Like, it turns out that your Senate nominee in Alabama was banned from the Gadsden Mall for sexually (laughs) harassing teenagers. Or your state delegation gets wiped out in Virginia in off-year elections. Or it turns out that your national security advisor was secretly being paid by the Turkish government to kidnap uh, someone from Pennsylvania. That that kind of stuff actually, like, helps boost the legislative agenda, right? It's like, it's not like good news for Republicans, but there's only so much that like uh, activism-minded liberals can be paying attention to at one time or another. And these other issues are more uh, visceral and more, you know, you like can see it on Chartbeat or or see it on cable or or whatever else. And they, they take, they divide people's attention. And meanwhile, there's all this like Trump antics. Mm -hmm. But like the bulk of Republican members of Congress are like plugging away at this policy agenda. And when the spotlight is on, you know, Roy Moore rather than Orrin Hatch, Mm -hmm. like that just makes it easier to go ahead without answering a lot of questions about like, why are you doing a big unpopular corporate tax cut? Right. Well, and they'd have gotten very deft at sort of turning, turning any one of these stories sort of to their advantage when it comes to the policy agenda. So like after the Virginia elections, Paul Ryan said, well, this just shows that we need to pass tax reform. And after, you know, with the specter of Roy Moore imploding and possibly another Democratic senator winning election next month, Mitch McConnell has said like, well, then we're going to resolve this with the Senate that we have right now. Like all of these things become sort of motivators to move more quickly, sort of paradoxically, even though it looks bad for Republicans in a vacuum. I mean, I don't think we should downplay that they're still taking difficult votes. Right. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's going to come back. It's worth, you know, dissecting this Lindsey Graham statement, though, right? Because this has definitely become the conventional wisdom in the sort of Republican hothouse. It's like, you should shut the Republican Party down if it can't do this tax bill. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to take it for a second, say the only thing Republicans were able to do in office was... uh, maintain uh, strong gun rights for Second Amendment supporters, uh, restrict the availability of abortion, um, increase the ability of devout Christians to, you know, practice their faith without regard to anti-discrimination laws, uh, help police departments uh, be able to fight crime as they want without a lot of uh, handcuffs from, you know, politically correct social activists, secure the southern border, Mm -hmm. crack down on illegal immigration, right? As I'm listing all of these things, it doesn't sound like I'm saying the Republican Party can't do anything. Yeah. It sounds to me like, quote unquote, all Republicans would be doing is the stuff that they promised in their campaigns (laughs) and the stuff that their voters care about. Now, if you say, okay, They got all that, but to, like, really deliver for their voters, what they need to do is pass a large tax increase on middle-class families. You're like, no. Yeah. No, they don't need to do that, right? Like, it is absolutely true that the billionaire donors to the Republican Party will be really mad at them if they don't deliver a tax cut for billionaire donors. Yeah. But that's, like— I mean, that's true. It's important. But it's like, it's a different thing from what it is they are saying. Like, they're not, they're doing lots of other stuff. And in particular, what they are doing is like taking action on the culture war topics 
that they campaign on. Yeah. Like you're never going to see an ad, right? Like when when um there's this race, you know, there's going to be a race in uh, Nevada, right? And uh, someone's going to run against Jackie Rosen. And the Republican is not going to say, we got to keep Jackie Rosen out because if she's in, taxes on middle class people are going to be too low, <laughs> right? The Republican right. needs to win so that we can pass this long, right? Like never in a million years. Like this is just like, it's it's... It's something they're doing. I mean, you can say they're doing it for their donors or you can say they're doing it uh, because they sincerely believe in it. Yeah. But whatever it is, they're not doing it because, like, this is what the base wants. Right. I do think that's true. I wonder. I, I have also come to wonder how much of it is – I don't want to say it's a vanity project because that's not fair. But, like, House Speaker Paul Ryan, like, this is, I think, legitimately been his baby for, like, oh, yeah. years. Like, he has been in the United States Congress too. To get reform to entitlements yeah. and to cut taxes. And so I do get the sense that he is very much, and when you set the agenda for one chamber of commerce, you have a lot of influence. Like he is very much the reason a lot of this is happening. Yeah, he was the Ways and Means chairman, and now he's a speaker. Everyone calls it, this is Ryan's bill. And it was and, really, it was a big day on Thursday that they passed Ryan's bill. And he is not as bought into some of the culture war. Like he, you yes, know, he's yeah. per, he sort of performformatively goes through some of it when he has to, but like he is certainly invested in sort oh, of right. the yeah. corporate Republican agenda. And so that, I, I feel like you can't kind of separate it from him just as an individual, as a person right. okay. who's setting this agenda. Let's, let's take a last break and then let's talk about the sort of prospects for this in the Senate. You need some great talent for your business, but, but you're short on time. I mean, who doesn't? Every business needs great talent. Every business person is short on time. And you don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. What you need are the right tools. You need smart tools. You need ZipRecruiter. Uh, so with ZipRecruiter, you post your jobs to over 100 of the world's leading job boards with just one click. So you rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. ZipRecruiter puts their smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, to achieve the best possible matches. Uh, that's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. Uh, you can even get a head start in the interview process by adding screening questions. You can help identify the most qualified candidates so you don't need to waste time. Uh, so 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Uh, ZipRecruiter, it's the smartest way to hire. Uh, so here's what you need to know. Does that sound great? It sounds great because it is great. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing business of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Uh, right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. You just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. One more time, try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. So oddly, the one Republican senator who has come out clearly against this so far is Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Uh, I would say an, an enigmatic figure on mm, Capitol Hill. I would agree. Yeah, he uh, he likes to kind of come out and say something, like have a hot take, and then and then eventually acquiesce. Right. To, for those, <laughs> to leadership demands. For those who followed the healthcare debate closely, they'll remember that Ron Johnson seemed to have had this kind of amorphous, ever changing set of problems with the Senate bill, and yet in the end, I remember because I was in the chamber when it was time to vote on whether to actually start debate on the bill or not. He had this like five minute standoff with Mitch McConnell, oh, when, man. and everybody thought like maybe he meant what he said all these weeks, and he's going to actually vote it down because he could have been the de decisive vote to stop it, and then he just. Voted and for then it. Ron John just Ron anyway. John. Yeah. 
And he really screwed up because once once uh, McCain you know, killed Skinny Repeal, right? I mean, Johnson could have at least like hopped on that bandwagon and Got gained nothing. gained a little credibility. Nope. So now we're in the weird situation where he says he won't vote for it, but nobody believes him. Yep. Yes. I think that's right. Should we talk about why he's not going to vote for it? I would love to know. <laughs> I, I personally did not understand his stated objection. I mean, I think I think a lot of people didn't quite understand it. Um, but so basically the, the gist of it was that because um, the Senate changed their bill to sunset the pass-through changes, um, he said that this bill will not help small businesses and individuals as much as it will help corporations. Um, and, that is true. And which is true. <laughs> uh, and that he would like to see the pass-through rate to be closer to what they are pushing for for corporations. Right. So he's not actually trying to help individuals. No. Just the well, owners of pass-through corporations. Of small yes, businesses. Of small businesses. Yeah. Wait, I mean, which is really big in Wisconsin. Right. Yes. And he's certainly not alone. Like, there is a very real conservative contingent for whom the pass-through issue is sort of like the most important thing. I know like House Freedom Caucus Chairman Mark Meadows has talked a lot right. about the pass-through. It's because one it's, of his red lines. It's, it's, well. it's worth saying, they will often discuss this as small businesses, uh, but the, the difference between a sort of uh, a C-Corp and an S-Corp is not the size of the business so much as the number of people who own the business. Right. Right. So, so like the Trump organization is a pass-through entity and in particular, uh, Coke Industries is a, is a pass-through entity. Mm. Um, so, this is an issue that's important to a lot of Republicans. It's not clear to me how much it's an issue that relates exactly to the, the small businesses. You I know, see. like, um, Mrs. Kim's dry cleaning shop is like actually probably not paying at a super high rate anyway because it's not that... Uh, lucrative. Right. Um, and it, it, the, the way they've set this up, too, in particular, is like they wanted to, an initial objection liberals had was, well, OK, you're going to deliver a huge tax cut to law firms uh, through this, uh, which you would, because almost all law firms are organized pass throughs. Mm -hmm. So they made some special rules so that uh, professional services companies and stuff couldn't get this credit. You know, so it's helping, I don't know, like real businesses in their mind. Uh, but real estate companies like still get the favorable treatment. So there's this clearly a, a looking out for like a certain prominent family in American politics here. Um, but I mean, you you could imagine Ron John getting the White House's attention with this for yeah. that exact reason. But the problem is like the changes he wants to make are not cheap, right? And no. like for the reasons that we already laid out, like the Senate is working with a very thin margin for error or, you know, thin margin when it comes to changing the plan that they currently right. have. Yeah. Um, Johnson is asking for something that is incredibly difficult for them right. to deliver on right. and probably maybe even impossible. But that's the only the only person who's on the record, right? Yes. Now, another wild card in here, in my opinion, is uh, Rand Paul, uh, who sort of scuttled some of these healthcare bills, mm -hmm. and now he was the one who suggested originally that they that they full. Oh no, Tom Cotton. Yeah, but Tom also, Cotton. but also he said he said they should put the mandate thing in. And and what Rand Paul had said at the time was he didn't think it made sense to be raising taxes on middle class people, and that what they should do is they should repeal the individual mandate and use the money to make sure it was a tax cut for everyone in the middle class. Yeah. They did repeal the individual mandate, but it's still not a tax cut for everyone in the middle class. In right. fact, the Senate bill by year 11 is a tax increase on 
every single person in America who doesn't own a business. Yeah, there actually is a conflict here that I feel like has we haven't really drawn out yet, which is, you know, there's a there's pretty b- broad base of support to repeal the individual mandate as part of the tax reform right. bill. But like what you then do with the money is I think there's more division there maybe than we realize because you have a few people like uh, Bob Corker of Tennessee and Jeff Flake of uh, Arizona who are fixated on the deficit and the fact that this is going to increase the federal deficit by a trillion dollars. And so I was at the Capitol this week and I heard Bob Corker when he somebody asked him about the individual mandate. He said like, yeah, I could be for that as long as we use the money to therefore, you know, decrease the impact on the federal deficit this bill is going to have. But on the other hand, you have people like Rand Paul and Ted Cruz of Texas who have said like, yes, we should repeal the individual mandate, but then we should use that money to cut tax rates even lower for individuals, maybe for businesses as well. But like the point being that they aren't interested in shrinking that deficit number at all. They just want to cut taxes anymore. And I haven't seen how they're going to resolve that because on either side, it seems like you're going to disappoint somebody depending on how you depend, decide to use this money. Yeah, and then you have all of the the California and New York and New Jersey people right. are like, yeah, you should use that money to help salt a little bit more. Right. But, the, but the Senate needle that they have to thread, right? The, Mitch McConnell has to say to Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, look, I know that the bill says these middle-class tax cuts are going to expire, but like, come on, this is the real world, right? What's going to happen is as we get to that date, we're going to run on, let's make those tax cuts permanent, and either we're going to beat a million Democrats and win all their seats, or else Democrats are going to join with us, and we're going to have the 60 votes to extend those middle-class tax cuts. So don't worry about this JCT score. Don't worry about these attack ads. Like, that's never going to be implemented. Don't worry, guys. But then he's got to turn around and say to Bob Corker and Jeff Flake, look, I know you don't love this $1.5 trillion of short-term debt, but like in the long term, this bill reduces the deficit. Check out this JCT score. Yeah. You know, blah, 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 blah. And you have to convince, you have to convince Corker and Flake who are leaving, Mm -hmm. right, that like the bill does what it says it's going to do while convincing like. Rand Paul and others that, look, Corker and Flake are leaving. Right. The bill's not going to do what it says it's going to do. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it goes back to like the, their, like they, they can only lose two of their own members. And so like, we've already seen that they, like they, they had kind of a similar balancing act, I think, in the healthcare debate. They had to like convince the conservative side that like, we're doing a lot to roll back the Affordable Care Act, but they had to convince the moderate side that like, well, we're not, we're not going to like, you know, totally devastate the insurance market and leave millions of people uninsured. And they never actually came up with a compelling argument that won 50 Republican senators. And so now you already have, you have Ron Johnson already says he opposes the plan. You have, I think a lot of people presume that Susan Collins will end up being opposed, especially now that you've added healthcare to the equation. And then you have this, like there are at least six other sort of Un, you know, unknowns like Flake, Corker, who to your point, Matt, like don't really have any reason to vote for this if they don't like it because they've already announced that they're retiring. There are rumors um, about Young, Todd Young. Todd Young. Like, well, there was Wait, a report. Who's Todd Young? The <laughs> Pennsylvania senator. Indiana. Oh, Indiana. Oh, my the God. Indiana. See, See I don't go. even know. Right. And I cover them. Wow. <laughs> well, and then like James, speaking of sort of random senators who have popped up, James, yeah, James Langford of Oklahoma has been uh, worried about the, about the deficit. So... There was actually a report this morning, I'm not sure how seriously to take it, but there was a report this morning um, that there is a group of four Republican senators who are talking privately about whether to kill the current version of the Senate bill. And so, like, it does seem to be, like, it's, 
the house just breezed through this, which I think it correctly gives us the impression that there is real momentum behind this. And yet the Senate suddenly seems in a very precarious position. Right. I mean, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a question of whether or not corporate tax rates are enough to, to unite the Republican Party. But I mean, but also in the House, right, as you say, right, the leadership, I don't know what, the, a, a bunch of members who voted for the bill said that one reason they voted for the bill is that like everybody knew that the bill as written wasn't going to go through the Senate, mm. but they wanted to move the process forward. And they f- were claiming that some of these concerns would be addressed in the Senate. But while the Senate bill is different, it's not different in a way that addresses any of those concerns. Right. I mean, I mean, yeah. So it, they were given the same assurances that they were given in the healthcare debate that the Senate will make it better or we'll go into conference committee and we'll make it better. But I mean, it's not like What's different this time is they can actually see what the Senate has been doing and it's not better for them. Um, and, and yeah, I think like the deficit question is going to be really, really big for a lot of the senators. I think, I don't know. Dylan, yeah. Dylan's rolling his eyes. Well, a it's sort of a question. <laughs> yeah. How much do they, how much do they mean it? You know, Bob yeah. Corker has been really quiet for the last, I mean, the last few weeks, basically after being very outspoken for a while. Right. And I, I can't decide whether that means he's just waiting for the right time to sort of pop the bubble or whether he's sort of realized that, you know what, it's very important that we cut the corporate tax rate to 20%. So I'll set aside some of my previous objections um, and go ahead with this. The other thing that's interesting, I think, uh, to your point, Matt, is that I think there's been reporting, I think, Tara, you reported this, that Paul Ryan has has been asking House Republicans not to bash the Senate plan. And I think that seems like a tacit acknowledgement that, like, we don't want you getting out there on the record bashing this plan that you may end up having to vote for because the most important, like the most important calculus in all of this is what can get 50 votes in the United States Senate. Going into the House vote, several members told me that 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 was the message from leadership, just be quiet on the Senate bill for now. Yeah, but I mean that's a that's a <laughs> weird one, you know. Say? I mean, because with healthcare, I mean, a couple of different things happen with healthcare, right? Where initially we thought, okay, there was going to be some ping pong, uh, but then things just fell apart in the Senate, and yeah. we were like, okay, we're moving on. And then there was a last minute rush because actually the reconciliation orders were expired, mm-hmm. and so the House was eventually saying, okay, whatever the Senate can pass, because there's only a week left, like we'll just vote for it, yeah. right? You don't have that kind of countdown dynamic right here, right? So, like, on its face, if you were a House Republican who already voted yes on this House bill, you can say to whoever, right, to leadership, to your donors, like, I voted for tax reform. Mm -hmm. Like, I support it. And I also support the idea of actually getting something through with the Senate. But, like, I do not need to vote for this particular thing that was just put in front of me by Mitch McConnell yesterday. Yeah. But right? like, you- like I, I, I voted for a thing. We have many months. Like, I want to make this a bill that I like. That'll be interesting. Like, who do you think would do that, though? I guess well, this I is where the California Republicans potentially come back into play. Right. But- I, I just mean, I just mean, it's it's not obvious that you can jam them up. Yeah. In the exact way, there isn't a deadline that they were in, yeah. in the healthcare. They're like saying we've got to get this done by Christmas, but that's that's like that's just their schedule. It was actually true on healthcare, right? That like they were either going to get it done or, or it was over. Yeah, right. they're making the political calculus that going into 2018 for the midterms for the House Republicans, it would be not great if they were unable to finish Obamacare appeal 
and tax reform. Right. But, but it is an arbitrary deadline. But also like not. December, March. Like right. there's, a, there's yeah. a long time before the 2018 midterms. Right. Well, and I do think it seems like part of the speed calculation is you don't want to allow Basically, you don't want to allow people to, like, figure out what's in this plan and how right. bad it could end up being. Like, if you just ask everybody to vote for it before Christmas and kind of just get it out of the way, that's the best way to get it passed. And to that point, I mean, that's that's what kind of makes me skeptical of, like, okay, this is, like, working great. There's no fuss. There's no drama. Because we did see with the healthcare debate that there was at the beginning when McConnell first put out his plan, that, like, there was that kind of feigned unity or silence around it. And we're kind of experiencing that same thing now, where it's yeah. just like, no one's really coming out really full for something or really against something. Yeah. There's I just get, a lot of nothing. I guess the question is, like, is Ron John a canary in the coal mine, or is he just Ron Johnning and everybody will stay? United? I mean, I'm not sure we should ever take him to be a... a bellwether of anything. Right. Ron John right. is always Ron Johnny. Right, exactly. And so that's why, you know, I'm waiting for, like, the Bob Corker or Jeff Flake move. People right. who have... And John McCain, right? I mean, yeah, I think, I think John McCain, McCain has emerged as a critical, I don't know, figure in, yeah, but, in but, Senate politics of these days. Yeah. I don't know. McCain, McCain, his whole pitch was this needs to be regular order. It needs to be a bipartisan effort. And, I mean, it, it has... Not, I mean, technically, yes, they're going through committee and marking up and Democrats were able to offer amendments and all that. But like, so he keeps saying like, yes, it's regular order. It's fine. Even though well, then they're I, not actually taking input from Democrats. Th- they're th- moving th- it really quickly. Then I heard him say uh, yesterday, well, I don't know, like they just rolled out a whole new bill last night. I'm not yeah. sure if that's regular. I mean, who knows, right? Like this regular order thing is like angels on the pin of a needle, right? Like, <laughs> it, this is not a highly deliberative bipartisan process. No. But it is, like, it meets the technical criteria of regular order. Right. This is just the kind of thing where, like, John McCain has to decide what he thinks. Right. Like, I don't I don't think there's, like, an answer like, right. out there. And he has been a little kind of an, uh, like, you know, maverick, to use that word, on taxes, right? Like, I can't remember for sure, but didn't he, he, he vote voted against, against the, the Bush, Bush tax? Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, okay, I think we we better wrap it up. There's gonna be there's gonna be more time for for tax reform. They probably won't get this done. Well, they won't get it done next week, and mm. I don't think they'll get it done when they say they're gonna get it done. Uh, so with that, um, <laughs> thanks to you guys uh, for, for being here. Thanks to our sponsors. Uh, thanks to our producer Peter Leonard. Uh, if you want to talk more about these issues, I really suggest you check out the Weeds Facebook group. We've even got there's gonna be something special coming there soon. So, but I can't tell Ooh, you what. So, uh, oh, wow. exactly. Stay tuned. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Keep recommending your podcast and we will see you next week.